Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Amen. Thank you, Brandon, so much for leading us in prayer. Uh, open your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 1 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. We've got paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. And um, you can grab that Bible, turn it to page 530. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to have that Bible that you're picking up right now. Go ahead and take that home with you. Let that be our gift to you this morning. Um, Acts chapter 1 is where we are. Let me just uh, pause for a moment, expand a little bit on what Brandon just prayed for. I want to extend special thanks to everybody who came out yesterday for our uh, annual work, <coughs> work day. Uh, thanks also, yes, to the deacons for organizing that, for, uh, to Brenda and the hospitality team also for helping to organize that. And thanks be to God for holding off the rain for just one uh, extra day so that we could take full advantage of our time outside. So we got a lot of work done yesterday, um, beautiful weather, it was a great time to be together. So I know not all of you were able to make it, but those of you who came and, and worked hard, just thank you for helping us to be good stewards um, of our property. Uh, here at New Life. Well, we are uh, <clears throat> going through a sermon series here at New Life about uh, prayer. We're um, considering prayer as a way of taking hold of God. And uh, we're just looking at various passages to see what it says uh, about this task of prayer. And one of the things I've been trying to do is, is challenge some of the common assumptions that we have about prayer that, that maybe need to be challenged kind of assumptions we make about prayer or kind of blind spots we have about prayer. And one of those blind spots is that very often we think of prayer as if it is something that we only do as individuals. We think of it as just kind of a private act, just what we do when we're by ourselves. But you might remember in the very first uh, sermon in this series, we looked at uh, Jesus' prayer, Matthew chapter six, what we call the Lord's Prayer. And you remember how Jesus taught us to pray? Uh, I made very quick reference, it was very brief, but I made reference to the fact that in the Lord's Prayer, what you'll find are plural pronouns. What Jesus says is, our Father, not my Father who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, not give me my daily bread. Forgive us our debts, not forgive me my debts. Now, of course, it is totally appropriate to pray individually and to pray by yourself as you have opportunity, that's true, but it's significant, isn't it, that when Jesus teaches us to pray, it seems that Jesus has our place in the church in mind. He seems to be thinking of prayer as something we're doing in community. He seems to think that prayer is something we're always going to be doing with a view to our place in the church. And that should make perfect sense to us, right? Because we know that Jesus came and laid down his life not for just a bunch of isolated individuals, but for his sheep, for the church, for his people. You, friends, are part of a community, and that should inform the way you live, the way you act, and the way you pray. We are a community. We are a family. And we should view all things through that lens, including prayer. And so that's what we're talking about this morning. We're going to be thinking about prayer in community. Um, now, there are different ways that we can pray in community. Of course, when we're at home with our family, we're kind of praying in community. 
Um, our life groups, when our life groups pray, that's kind of community prayer. Um, our missions team met, met this morning at 10 o'clock and prayed for our missionaries. So one of our ministry teams got together and prayed as a community. Um, Brandon just left, led us in prayer as a church, as a congregation. That was a prayer in community. So all, all of these are prayers in community. There are many different ways we can pray in community. But this morning I want to think specifically of a kind of community prayer which is called the prayer meeting. <laughs> the prayer meeting. Now to some of you a prayer meeting might be kind of a new thought, um, but in the past actually it was very common, very frequent for all churches to have a weekly prayer meeting. Um, today we don't find the prayer meeting nearly as frequently offered, but let me share with you what a guy named Charles Spurgeon said, very, very famous British pastor in the 1800s. He said this, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. I mean, have you ever found yourself longing for more change in the church? You want to see more things happen? You want to see more spiritual growth? You want to see more conversions? You want to see more people come? You want to see bigger things happen? What Spurgeon is saying, that ain't going to happen unless you take the prayer meeting seriously. That this isn't going to happen, I'll just broaden it a little bit, until we take more seriously prayer in community. Now, I don't want this to come across this morning as oh boy, here he is telling us another thing we gotta do. You know, another church event that we gotta go to. Another thing for me to feel guilty about because I'm not doing it. Uh, I hope you don't get that from this message. That's not really my intent. Um, I want you to see the prayer meeting and prayer in community as an opportunity. The prayer in community happens to be a time and occasion on which God in history has very frequently done great and powerful and mighty things. That very often when God's people, as a community, get serious about prayer, that's when churches get radically changed. That's when communities get radically changed. And that's when nations get radically changed. When God's people take prayer seriously, not just individually, but as a community as well. And so we're going to be looking at how this plays out in the scriptures, <clears throat> starting here with this passage in Acts chapter 1. Um, again, the paperback Bibles, it's on page 530. Acts chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 12 through 14, and then we're going to skip forward and read the first few verses of Acts chapter 2. So if you're able, please stand. Um, Book of Acts, we were in Acts last Sunday, actually. Um, Acts, remember, it's a, a history of the very early church, right after Jesus is risen from the dead. This is just telling us what happened uh, immediately after that. And um, here in chapter 1, Jesus has just re uh, been resurrected, and he has appeared to his disciples, and he's given instruction to his disciples. He's now ascended back to the Father in the presence of the disciples, and he sends the disciples back to Jerusalem, and so that's where we're picking this up in Acts 1, verse 12. It says, then they, the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. 
Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now just go forward to chapter two, verses one through four. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Holy Spirit, we call on you right now to come and be among us and open our hearts and open our minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So, very often what happens through corporate prayer is that God does something. What he does is he sends revival to the church. And so as we think of prayer in community, this is kind of the specific angle that I want to look at today, is how is it that corporate prayer, community prayer, leads to revival? Revival. Revival is something that all of us as Christians should be longing for in the church. And um, I, I want to give you a little bit of background here, first of all, about revival and what revival is like. So the first thing I want to show you is this. God sometimes sends revival to his church. <laughs> now maybe that statement doesn't sound as strong as it possibly could with the word sometimes there, but, but let me explain what I mean by this statement. God sometimes sends revival to his church. First of all, it's God who sends revival. It's the first thing to know about revival. It's not something that we manufacture. It's not something that we can engineer. It's not something that we can plan. I know there are churches that set aside revivals on certain weekends, and there's good reasons for that to get together, but just because we decide to have a revival on a weekend doesn't mean that God is going to fit his plan for revival into our schedule. It doesn't operate that way. God sends revival when God wants to send revival, not according to our plan. But then that word sometimes is key. God sometimes sends revival. Not only is God not obligated to send revival just whenever we want it, it actually is something that doesn't happen very frequently. It's kind of uncommon. A little bit like a miracle. You know, miracles don't happen all the time. If miracles happened all the time, they'd be normal and we wouldn't call them miracles. Miracles are unusual. Revivals are unusual. They only happen sometimes, but when they happen, you know it. Something significant happens. I was in Birmingham, Alabama this past week. I was at something called the Gospel Reformation Network conference, and when I was driving down there, I entered into just an unbelievable rainstorm. And for about an hour total, I was just driving through this incredible downpour. Got to Birmingham, got to a restaurant, and I asked somebody, I said, does it rain like this very often in Alabama? And the guy said, actually, no, no, this is highly unusual. I found out from news reports, it was like six to eight inches of rain they got. I mean, it's been raining a lot here. We'll probably get one or two inches, maybe. It was six to eight inches of rain down there. 
It was an unbelievable outpouring of rain. And this guy said, yeah, this is really unusual. You know what? Revivals are like that. It's unusual. It's just occasionally when God just opens up the clouds of his grace and rains down his Holy Spirit on us in an immense, powerful downpour. It doesn't happen all the time. But man, when it happens, you notice it. You take note of it. It's amazing, but it happens only sometimes. But then the third thing here is God sometimes sends revival to his church. Revival starts in the church. It doesn't start in the world. It's not something that God does out in the culture or in society. It starts in here. It starts with congregations like this. God gives revival to his church. That's where it begins. God sometimes sends revival to his church. So you might still be thinking, well, what, is, what are you really talking about, revival? Well, two, two definitions here of revival. A guy named T.M. Moore says this, revival is a sovereign work of God's spirit, okay, sovereign, it's up to God, of God's spirit that produces an unusual awakening of spiritual life among God's people, among his church, resulting in an awesome awareness of God, a sincere repentance of sin, a deep longing for God and holiness, and an effective passion to reach the unsaved. That's what a revival looks like. We don't get a definition of revival in the Bible, so we look to people who study history to kind of help us understand um, what they are. Martin Lloyd-Jones, kind of known as an expert on revival, says this, revival is the outpouring of the Spirit over and above his usual ordinary work. So, you know, normally in the church, you'll, you'll have a sense of the holiness of God and conviction of sin, and you'll hear the gospel. That always happens in the church at some level. But in revival, it's intensified. It just increases in power. It's over and above his usual ordinary work. It's an amazing, unusual, extraordinary thing which God in his sovereignty and infinite grace has done to the church from time to time during the long centuries of her history. Now, there are many examples of revival um, throughout history and throughout the Bible. I just want to start by giving you a couple of examples from the Bible, revivals in the Bible. All right, so first of all, we have from the Old Testament this story of Josiah. Second Chronicles 34, amazing revival. There was a guy named Manasseh, a king in Israel, really bad king, very evil, notorious king. It is said about him that there was no one more evil than him, and in fact, when he was reigning, Israel was more evil than the world around them, more evil than the nations. That's how bad Manasseh was. And shortly after Manasseh, Josiah took the throne. So here's another thing about revivals. Very often they happen at points of very low spiritual interest. When everybody is just despairing, that God has forgotten us and it's all over, that's when revivals often happen. That's the way a lot of people are thinking about our culture today, right? It seems like it's just done, it's gone, we've lost it all. Ah, you don't know, that's a time to be excited. <laughs> because this is the time when God might be doing something. Manasseh comes along, horrible king, but then Josiah comes, he takes the reign. It said very early on when Josiah was a little boy, the spirit was already working in him, he was seeking God, and then when he took the throne, it tells us that there were these people repairing the temple, and they found the law of God, it says. Now, 
That should surprise you. You know, if they found the law of God, what that means is they didn't know where the law of God was. They'd lost the law of God. They didn't have the scriptures. They didn't know where it was. I mean, they hadn't been reading it. They hadn't been studying it. They hadn't been proclaiming it for who knows how long. It's found, and they bring out the word of God, and they, they read it to Josiah. And when Josiah hears it, he's deeply convicted of his sin. He's just overwhelmed with the way he's fallen short of God's word. He, he wants to know more. He gathers the elders together. They go to the temple and they read this word more and everybody hears it and they're just overwhelmed with how far short they've fallen of what the scriptures have said. And they say, we've got a covenant with God. We've got to get back right with God and the people together. Again, it's a community. They come together and they renew their promise and commitment to follow God. They celebrate the Passover and it says at the end of the account that no one celebrated the Passover like Josiah did. It was just like there was this unusual passion, thankfulness, gratitude to God for bringing out the word and reminding everybody who God is and what he has done in his grace. That's revival. That's a picture of revival. Josiah, Second Chronicles 34, another one. Ezra and Nehemiah. <clears throat> This is Nehemiah chapter 8. This is many years later, after Josiah. This is after the exile. Uh, God's people have come back to Jerusalem. They're building the wall around Jerusalem. And in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, there's this story of Ezra. He gets out the law of God again. He gets out the word. Now, what actually was he reading? Something in the Old Testament, probably first five books of the Old Testament. We don't know exactly what he was reading in Josiah's case or in Nehemiah's, but Ezra brings out the word and he reads it. And here's all the way through the whole community. Again, it was a community event. Men, women, and children, all who could understand. They were all out there listening and the word is read. It says all the ears were attentive. And when they heard the word, they all bowed their heads in humility and they worshiped and people were weeping as they heard the word read. And the Levites came in and they explained the word, it says. They opened it up so they could understand it. And they said, look, this is not a time to weep. This is a day of the holiness of God. You should be rejoicing. And it says they all went home rejoicing because they understood the word of God. That's revival. They hadn't heard the word. They didn't understand the word. It came out. They were revived. They were rejoicing. <clears throat> Another example. Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, and that's what I just read to you from Acts chapter 2. Have you ever thought of Pentecost as a kind of revival? That's what it was. It was a revival. Look at uh, chapter 2 again. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. There they are again as a community. They're all together, and then suddenly there comes from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It fills the entire house while they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's revival, an outpouring of the Spirit, and everybody is aware of it. There's something extraordinary happening here. The Spirit is present. People sense it, and then, you know, there's more here about the speaking in tongues and that kind of thing. But what ends up happening is that Peter stands up in the midst of this and starting uh, <clears throat> in verse 14 and after, he, he preaches a sermon and he tells them about Jesus. And he says, here's what Jesus has done in his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. He proclaims Jesus to people. And the people are hearing it. And here's what they say in response to Peter's sermon. 
they say, what do I have to do to be saved? That's what people do in revival. They're like, I am under the condemnation of God. What do I do to have my sins forgiven? How do I know I can go to heaven? How do I get out from underneath the wrath of God? What do I do to be saved? You know, when revival isn't happening, people don't care about being saved. It's not an interest to them. And then the spirit breaks out, and all of a sudden there's this deep, eternal, spiritual concern in people's hearts. And in response to that, Peter, he steps up and he says this. Here's what you do. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. <laughs> 3,000 people are converted as the word is preached. That's revival. That's revival. So here, here's the marks of revival, just to kind of sum up. When revival happens, there's this renewed love for God's word, a renewed passion for his scriptures. There's, there's deep conviction of sin. People are wounded at the thought that they have offended their God. People are, they want to repent. They want to turn from their sin. There's deep, sincere repentance. There's this new awareness of how great and mighty and holy and awesome God is. People become overwhelmed with that and humbled. Churches get filled with worshipers. There's accounts of revivals and there's people sitting in the windows. There's people turned away because you can't get enough people in the church to worship God. People are converted. The church gets passionate about evangelism and missions. People go into full-time vocational ministry as the Spirit of God is poured out. And there's revival in the church. It's not something we can control, friends. I mean, we just can't make God do that, but sometimes he does do that. Jonathan Edwards um, was one of the leaders of an American revival called the Great Awakening in the 1700s, really influential actually in the founding of our nation, the Great Awakening, uh, 1740 or so, and Edwards is describing this, and he says, Here, here's what it was, our public assemblies, that is like assemblies like this, Sunday morning worship, they were beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister. The assembly was from time to time in tears while the word was preached. Some weeping with sorrow and distress. Others with joy and love. Others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. A picture of revival that didn't happen that long ago in our own nation. Friends, let me ask you this. Do you want to see this happen is this a desire of yours? Are you interested in this? I mean, when you think about our culture and our situation, and we, I hear so many people, you know, just lamenting what's happening in our nation, and things are getting so bad, and the church is doing this. I mean, how do we fix that? That's what everybody's asking. What do we do? You know, what's our passion for fixing this? We've got to make sure that we as the church are on the right side of history and all the positions we take. Is that, is that what we need to be doing? Make sure we adopt all the right social causes that the world is telling us we need to be concerned about. Then the world will love us and the church will explode in growth. Is that what we're supposed to be doing? You know, th thinking about 2024 is another election here. We gotta marshal all the forces and get everything ready so we can get the right guy in office and then things will be different. 
Is that your passion? Is that what you're thinking about, what you're talking about, what you're passionate about? Friends, all those things may be important, have some relevance, yes, but none of them are a long-term solution to our issue. The long-term solution is revival. In the church, the Spirit of God poured out on God's people. That's what we need to happen. Do you ask God to do that? Are we longing for that to happen? I mean, if we're not, how can we blame God for not sending it? And the world continues, the nation continues, the culture continues to downward spiral while the church is longing for something besides revival, thinking that that's the answer. God sometimes sends revival to his church. Now, again, I keep saying that there's nothing we can do to engineer this. There's nothing we can do to obligate God to do it. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing we can do. We can do something, and this is the second point. God often sends revival in response to prayer. Often that's the way it works. Not always, but very often, it's when God's people get together in community and pray. And so go back to chapter one, the first passage I read, verses 12 through 14, and that's what we're seeing happening here, right? Jesus has ascended to the Father. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, I want you to, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. I don't want you to do anything. Um, the Spirit is gonna come. Jesus promises that the Spirit is going to come. And he says, go back to Jerusalem and, and wait. And so they go back, verse 12, they return to Jerusalem like Jesus told them to do. So what are they gonna do? They, they just gotta wait. <laughs> well, here's what they do. They get all these people together. Verse 13, there's this list of all these people. And then verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. That's what they did. The, the word devoting means to be busy. They were busy about prayer. <laughs> and it's such an interesting term to use. You know, we're so busy with other things, we don't have time to pray. But here, these early disciples, what they were busy with was, was prayer, persistently praying. And notice that this prayer in verses 12 through 14 is not taking place in the temple. It's not part of a formal worship service like this one. They're meeting in the upper room, it says in verse 13. They found a place to rent, just a, a place to go. And they all went there for the express purpose of praying. And then 10 days later, what I read to you in chapter two, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, that was 10 days after this happened. God's people got busy about prayer and then the Holy Spirit was poured out. Now, remember what we talked about last time, God's sovereignty and our responsibility to pray. We see it again here, right? God says, Jesus said, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit, and yet the people got busy praying. <laughs> and it wasn't like they said, well, Jesus said he's gonna send the, the, the Spirit, so <laughs> let's just wait and do nothing. No, they prayed. <laughs> and then God used their prayers, responded to those prayers, sent the Holy Spirit. J. Edwin Orr, he, he's a, a, a kind of well-known chronicler, historian of, of uh, revivals, says this, no great spiritual awakening has begun anywhere in the world apart from united prayer, prayer and community. Christians persistently praying for revival. That's why I want you to be excited about corporate prayer, community prayer. Very often throughout history, this is when God shows up and does a mighty thing. Not always. We're not sure when he's gonna do it next. 
Might be another hundred years before we get a, a revival like the Great Awakening. And it might be next month that we get a revival like the Great Awakening. It could happen. It's probably not going to happen if we don't pray for it. I'm pretty sure of that. But if we want it to happen, let's get together in corporate prayer, praying together, the prayer meeting. Um, when I was in Chengdu, China, um, most of you know I was able to go there 2018. I taught a class at a seminary there, and um, we, uh, the class was over, and I remember was leaving, and I had a, a guy there with me who was taking me back to my hotel, and we were standing at the elevator, because the church met on like the 19th floor of this, this big building. We're standing at the elevator, <clears throat> and here's this, um, this uh, like, um, plaque, and um, so I asked him, what does this say? And I asked him about this side too, because I could read the Times. Uh, couldn't read anything else, but I could read the Times. I said, what, what does this say? And he said, well, this says um, <clears throat> Sunday morning service. Uh, no, it, it says at the top here, it says uh, Sunday morning prayer meeting, 7.50. And then it says worship service, 9 o'clock. And then it says Sunday school at 11 o'clock. And I said, okay, what does this say? And uh, he said, well, this, this down here says weekday morning prayer meeting, uh, except for Tuesday, no Tuesday, but weekday morning prayer meeting, 720. And then this says Saturday morning prayer meeting, 750. So six days out of the week, they're getting up before 8 o'clock to pray in community with God's people. And I said to the guy, well, like how many people show up? And he said, oh, not many. I said, how many? He said, oh, like 25 to 30. <laughs> you know, every day, six days a week. I mean, they're, they're people who are serious about prayer, serious about prayer and community, serious about the prayer meeting. It's part of their weekly worship. There's more prayer going on than anything else. And this is consistent with the book of Acts, friends. Corporate prayer throughout the book of Acts, we, just, we see it over and over again. I just showed you here in chapter one, um, they were devoting themselves to prayer, verse 14. Well, it goes on. Chapter two, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. So I'm not suggesting that prayer is the only thing that happens when revival comes. I'm not suggesting that prayer is the only thing that a church should do. I mean, teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, those are important too. But, but I'm trying to show you that let's not neglect prayer and the persistent occurrence that we see of it in times of revival. Um, later in chapter four, when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together. And got, this is a passage from last week that we talked about. When Peter had got out of jail, when they heard about that, they, again, it's a community, they're together and they lift up their voices together. They're praying in community. And they pray to God. Six, four, the disciples, after they appoint deacons, here's what we're going to do. We're going to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We, corporate, it's not just one person. It's a community. 12.5, here's Peter. He's back in prison. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church, the community, praying for Peter. Peter gets out of prison, chapter 12, verse 12, when he realized it was an angel who let him out, he goes to the house of Mary where many were gathered together and were praying. There's a prayer meeting going on at Mary's house for Peter. 
1616, as we were going, this is Paul and Silas, we were going to the place of prayer. They were met by a slave girl, but there they are, they're on their way to pray together in community. 1625, Paul and Silas, they're in jail, and what are they doing in jail? They're praying and singing hymns to God. They were praying out loud so that the other prisoners heard them, overheard them praying and singing. Um, chapter 20, this is Paul with the elders in Ephesus. He's about ready to leave Ephesus, and so he says goodbye to them, and he kneels down, and he prays with them all. Just all of these are prayers in community. They're all a version of corporate prayer. Some of them prayer meetings, some of them just people together praying but you see how this passion that the Chinese church has for prayer meetings is there in the book of Acts and should be in our hearts as well if we want to be biblical about corporate prayer. Uh, let me share you just one example of, of, of what can happen when people get together in prayer. Uh, I think I've told this story years ago maybe, but it's just, I don't know why I don't hear more about this. Probably most of you haven't heard of this. It was called the Prayer Meeting Revival of 1857. Prayer Meeting Revival of 1857. There's one guy who wrote a book about it and he called it the event of the century. Like the most important event in the 19th century. There was a particular event later in the 19th century in the 1860s you might recall, which was a pretty big deal. The Civil War. But this guy says, no, the event of the century was the Prayer Meeting Revival. 1857 it starts. 1857, it was a hard time. A difficult time. Slavery was becoming very tense in the nation. You know, we're getting close to the beginning of the Civil War. The Dred Scott decision came out in 1857. One of the worst, most ridiculous rulings of our Supreme Court ever about the status of African Americans in, in our country. Dred Scott comes out and the stock market crashed in 1857. So there's financial pack, uh, panic, there's racial tensions, the Supreme Court is going crazy. It's a horrible time. You know, we tend to think that our time now is, is bad, and you know, maybe it is, but there have been plenty of times when it's been worse. 1857 was one of those years. So here's this guy named Jeremiah Lamphere, and hardly anybody knows anything about this guy. You know, a few things about what he did. He wasn't a pastor or missionary or professor or anything. He's just a guy in New York City who decided to start a lunch hour prayer meeting in New York City between 12 and 1 o'clock. And he just invited people to come. And so he rented a room. And the first time, there was like three people there. And then next week, there were six people there. A week after that, there was 20 people there. In September 1857, there were 20 people in April 1858, 10,000 people praying in New York City during the noon hour. It grew from 20 to 10,000 people. 10,000 people praying. And then people got wind of it throughout the country. It spreads in Cleveland. There were 2,000 people gathered over the noon hour. Philadelphia, 3,000 people gathered to pray. Chicago, 2,000 people gathered. In Columbus, um, Ohio, people were doing the same thing, gathering over the noon hour, and the governor of the state kind of heard of it and started participating, came to one of the prayer meetings and, uh, and, and told them he'd just been converted to Jesus because of the power of, of these prayer meetings. And the world starts taking notice. People start noticing what's happening, and the secular media starts writing about it. 
And so here's the Chicago Daily Press. This is no Christian newspaper about the prayer meetings in Chicago, the prominent topic of thought and conversation in Chicago, in our streets, in our places of business, and in our homes, is the subject of religious awakening now in progress in this community. And it is all-absorbing. Everybody's talking about it. He goes on to say it's, it's not just the believers who are talking about it. It's the unbelievers in the city of Chicago. Everybody's taking notice. Why don't we hear more about this? This is amazing. And our secular media and historians just kind of bury it. This, this, is, this is what happened. In fact, if you want to know more about this kind of thing, one way you can generate some enthusiasm and interest in revivals is to read about them. And so here's a book called A God-Sized Vision by Colin Hansen. I would recommend this to you. Multiple stories about revivals, uh, including the story of the prayer meeting revival that I've, that I've just told you about. So God often sends revival in response <coughs> to prayer. Last thing I want to show you uh, is this, that God could send revival to us today. It could happen. Look back to the passage, chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Um, I, I want you to focus on verse 13 here, just looking at the people who are present at this prayer meeting, because it could be, we, we might kind of tend to think, yeah, God does that, but he does that for like these really special Christians. You know? He does that for the super believers. Uh, you know, he does this for unusually great godly people. That, that's where God sends revival. Well, let's see, who shows up to this prayer meeting in Acts chapter 1? Um, we see Peter is there at the beginning. Yeah, Peter, the guy that just denied Jesus. Right, the guy, the leader of the church who couldn't profess Jesus before a little slave girl. A pretty significant fall from leadership. Peter's at the prayer meeting. Um, who else is there? Thomas is there. Remember Thomas the doubter? He's the cynic. He's the skeptic. He's the guy with all the questions. He's the guy that doesn't like to believe immediately. He's the guy always needling you with all, all, all these questions, you know. He's at the prayer meeting. He shows up. Thomas does. Matthew is there. Remember, Matthew was a tax collector. Jews hated tax collectors. Matthew would have been regarded as the enemy of your typical Jewish person. He's in Jerusalem. He's at the prayer meeting. Who else is here? Verse 14, skip down. Verse 14, um, the women were there. I mean, that's fairly significant because women had very low social standing at this time. A woman would not typically be mixing with other men. But there they are. They're at the prayer meeting. People of low social standing, people regarded as kind of outcasts. They're there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. Family members come. On Mother's Day, we get to hear from Mary, the mother of Jesus, a mention of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Jesus is there. And then lastly, it says, and his brothers were there. You might remember in the Gospels, it tells us that the brothers didn't believe in Jesus. <laughs> they were unbelievers. They were the ultimate skeptics. They didn't believe in Jesus as the Son of God. We don't know what happened, but here they are at the prayer meeting. So they, they must have seen Jesus on the cross dying for their sins. They must have maybe seen him appear in his resurrected body. And apparently they got to the point where they bowed their knee to him and declared him Savior and Lord and became believers in Jesus. They're new converts, in other words. 
They're at the prayer meeting too. It's a diverse group, friends. There's all kinds of people at the prayer meeting and they're all praying. Do you see that in verse 14? With one accord, all in agreement, united, together. People from different walks of life, people from different education levels, people with different moral backgrounds, and there they are together, putting aside their differences and praying. Wonder what would happen if the church, new life, churches in our presbytery, churches in our city and community, churches in our nation, could put aside their differences and join together in one accord and pray for revival. That, friends, I submit to you, is the way forward. That's how things change. It's not a political thing. It's not a cultural thing. It's a spiritual thing. It begins in the house of God, and it begins when we get together and pray in one accord. What I want to urge you to do, friends, privately, in your private prayers, my, my request to you and my urging to you is Pray for revival. Incorporate that into your private prayers. Ask God to send revival to this church, to this congregation, to New Life Presbyterian Church. Say, God, please pour out your spirit on my church. God, please give us a renewed awareness of your holiness and greatness. Do that at New Life. God, please save people at New Life. Bring unbelievers to the church. Lord, help us to be quick to repent Pour out your spirit on us. Revive us. Ask God to do that individually. And if you're able, I would suggest to you our weekly prayer meeting. We do meet weekly on Wednesday nights to pray from 6.30 to 7.30. Um, We're going to revise our schedule just a little bit. Typically, we have met here in uh, the sanctuary. We're going to start meeting in the fellowship hall, 6.30 to 7.30. Um, we're going to put some chairs out, and you can all come. And uh, we're going to begin with a, a song. We're going to have a short scripture reading. And then we're going to follow the letters, A-C-T-S, Acts. which gives a good kind of order of prayer. A, adoration, we're going to praise God. C, confession, we're going to humbly confess our sins. T, thanksgiving, we're going to give him thanks. We'll take some time to talk with one another about how we can pray for one another and go to S, supplication, praying for one another. And we'll be done by 7.30, I promise. I'm pretty good about that, getting us done by 7.30. And a lot of people, you go to a prayer meeting, how long is this going to last? When am I going to get out of here? Well, 6.30 to 7.30, it's just 60 minutes. Whether you're a member or a non-member, you're invited to come. Whether you're a mature Christian or a brand new convert, like Jesus Brothers, you're invited to come. Whether you love to pray or are scared to pray, you're invited to come. And I promise we won't make you pray if you're scared to pray, but we would be delighted to pray for you. And you know what? Children are welcome too. Bring your children. Let, let's hear children pray. It's been great to have the Gonzaleses here. They've moved to Alabama here recently, so you know the rainstorm I was talking about actually the other day. Um, so they're passing through town visiting. They would come to our prayer meeting on Wednesday nights and, and bring their kids, and we would get to hear their, their children pray, and it's just a sweet, encouraging, wonderful thing to hear children pray. So bring your children, it's okay. We'd love for them to join with us. There's another revival story about a guy named Robert Murray McShane. He was a pastor in Scotland in the late 1800s. There was revival there. There was multiple prayer meetings 
in McShane's church, and five, there were multiple prayer meetings, and five of the prayer meetings were conducted and run exclusively by children. <laughs> the, the children got together and decided we're gonna pray together. There was no adult supervising it. The kids initiated, got together in their groups, and prayed. Would love to have children join us. Let me just leave you with this. This is uh, <clears throat> the promise from, from Scripture, from Second Chronicles. This, these are the words of God. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Let's stand. We're going to conclude this morning as we have been through this prayer series by reciting the Lord's Prayer together. Perhaps you could pay special emphasis, special attention uh, to the plural pronouns in this prayer. We're praying in community. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.